Retirement in this country is broken. We work ourselves to death and miss out on so many of life's experiences along the way. There's got to be a better way. David Adams is a certified financial planner and CPA and founder of David Adams Wealth Group, an independent firm that offers securities through Raymond James Financial Services and is here to help you learn how to retire while you work and develop a different way of thinking when it comes to managing your money. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, David Adams, and this is Retire While You Work, and you can hear us every Sunday on News Radio WLAC 1510. And I'm here today in studio with one of my team members, Andrea Risk. Hello, Andrea. Hi, David. How's it going? Great. Glad you're here. And she's going to be reading some questions from our listeners here in a bit after the break. And we have a special guest today, Mr. Jeff Mobley, who's an estate planning attorney here in Nashville. Hello, Jeff. Hi, David. How you doing? Great. Great to see you here. Thank you. It's going to be a great session with Jeff. We're going to talk about things you need to consider when it comes to getting a will, trust, power of attorney, and all of that important stuff. So stay tuned for that. You won't want to miss it. Again, welcome. I like to talk each week about why retire while you work and why do I do this show? I know that there are a lot of these financial talk shows, and we hope that this one's different and helps you find ways to enjoy your life right now and not at some predetermined retirement destination. I've been in this industry almost 15 years, and I can tell you I've seen too many 65-year-olds come into my office where they've just saved, saved, saved with no real direction, and they're tired. They're tired and they're worn down, and people are living a lot longer, and many people are taking second careers and starting businesses and finding ways to keep income coming in. They want to keep their minds sharp and healthy and that sense of community intact. They don't want to stop, and I've learned so much from watching my father over the years go through this big transition. And I truly think I'll forever be a better advisor for it. And I want to help you, the listener, navigate these life changes with dignity and a clear mind. And the bottom line, in my opinion, is that this traditional sense of retirement in this country is just plain broken. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Retire While You Work, and I'm your host, David Adams. And after our next break, we're going to be taking some of your questions throughout the week. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about happiness and specifically how it ties into this Retire While You Work mindset that really the show is trying to instill in all of our clients and listeners, and honestly myself, this is definitely a learned process for most, and one that our society makes very hard because we're such a fast-paced society. Go, go, go all the time. And I talked on a recent show about how we have to learn how to not spend our precious time worrying about the market, whether it's the elections or Brexit, terrorist attacks, you name it, Greece years ago, all of these things steal your happiness. And at the end of the day, one thing I know is the market goes up and down based on one thing, and it's pretty simple, and that's if companies and the economy are growing. It really is that simple, and it's so hard because we get involved in the short term and this timing game, if you will, and lose sight of the big picture. And I believe after doing this for a while that a true holistic plan is the key to being able to truly get into this mindset where you're not focusing on the ups and downs of the market in the short term, or my gosh, what's on TV and instead relying on the confidence that you have in that plan. And in my, in my opinion, good planning always trumps all. So again, let's talk about happiness some. There's a great blogger and writer that I've had the privilege to spend a little bit of time with, Miss Brene Brown. And she talks a lot about this human desire for connection that we all have and we all crave. And as, even, as babies, I think we're hardwired, they say, scientifically, that we must have it to survive. And we want healthy relationships with others, 
our friends, our families, our coworkers. And one thing my dad always told me was that time is our most precious commodity. And guess what? We need time to grow these relationships and to foster them. But if we're working 80 hours a week, or saving every penny and never going on vacation with their family, how in the world can we truly have that connection? It's all related. It's a catch-22. So to have that retire-while-you-work mindset that I talk about each week, we have to think about all of this, not just the money or the stock market component. It's much bigger than this. And for example, we can't spend our time trying to control the outcomes. Again, the market, the election, we just have to buckle up and ride along and do your best. And I know it's easier said than done, and that's coming from your host, David Adams, who is a recovering perfectionist. But I want to see you understand, or I want you to understand one thing. I see clients every day at every level with every bit of money, and I've seen happy, and I've seen some that are miserable, and really how money factors into that. You know, for example, I've had the, a $30 million client that sat in my office and said, you know, if I just had $40 million, then I'd be happy and feel comfortable. And I've had a $200,000 retired client that's happy as can be and full of life. And so I hear all the time where people will think that they have to have $5 million to retire. They get these magic numbers in their heads out of nowhere usually. And most of the time they're fear-based or they're of this scarcity mindset, you know, that it's all going to go away or I've got to have more, more, more. So just for example, let's say I have a client that's not in great health anymore and it's been a scary ride for their family and the family really wants to have more time with this client if they're gonna see him uh, live for a few more years. And for this situation, and I get this quite a bit, I'll come up with a plan, for example, that says, let's just take $25,000 a year, maybe even for the next three years, you know, Lord willing on his health and possibly plan some international trips together. And imagine these experiences and how much more valuable they could be over just having to, you know, versus taking out $25,000 out of a million dollar portfolio, much more meaningful. And I'm not saying that you ignore the planning and the scenarios on making your money last. Heck no. I mean, that's what I do every day for people. But you've got to think outside of the Excel spreadsheets. We're going to go to break here in a second. I want to come back to this topic on happiness because I think it's very important. And you've been tuning in to Retire While You Work on News Radio 1510 WLAC. I'm your host, David Adams. And again, when we come back from break, we're going to talk more about happiness and money and then take some of our audience's top five most compelling questions of the week back in a few. Welcome back to Retire While You Work. I'm your host, David Adams. And before the break, we were talking about the art of happiness and how it relates to money and getting into that Retire While You Work mindset. So let's talk about this. I mean, what do we do with more money, when we have more money. Some of us buy more stuff. There's no secret to that. And we've all heard that stuff doesn't make you happy. And the more people make over a certain amount, they don't even save as much. This is something I've noticed over 15 years. They save a little bit more, but they really just buy more stuff and they accumulate. Heck, I've done it. I do it. And I'm working hard to slow down and to, to really be more conscious about giving away more and accumulating less. And in my opinion, once people save over, let's say, $500,000 in their retirement accounts, happiness only grows marginally higher. This is something I've noticed, and it's something that's been documented across different retirement studies. The average 60-year-old in this country, I was reading with a J.P. Morgan stat, I believe, has saved around sixty dollars to $70,000. So $500,000 is a huge hurdle that many never make. And same thing about income. There was a Stanford study and many others that concluded the same kind of range 
in result that those making between about 70 and 100 70,000 to 150,000 were the happiness now now why is that well it's it's truly comes down to the more stuff that you get the more you become to a, a slave to it and the marginally less ha- less and less happy you become and it's hard to pay bills and that's stressful so having enough to feel secure and having a plan for that money is what can really make us happy getting to to decide what to do with it and having something to look forward to that's what's exciting, not just having more money in your bank account. So it's not about how much you have, but people really can get excited when they're saving for a trip or maybe it's that new dress for a wedding. And I believe our line of business can do such a bad job at this. It's a broken system and can make a lot of people feel shame for not saving enough. And as a financial advisor, guess what? We make more and more money every time you save more. And it's a huge conflict of interest. And I'm not being critical of that. It's how I make a living. But there can be a way for most people to have a better chance at success. But if you're not talking to somebody that's leading with a plan and talking about your happiness and your goals, that's not an advisor. You need guidance in life, not just returns and investments. So I'd seek another relationship if that's the case. You know, if it's purely transactional, again, that's not advice. And there are many people that just want a transaction-based relationship, but somebody needs to be doing the plan. So what else do you need to know to be happy? What else robs us of those precious little happy moments in life? So don't even get me started on technology and social media. These absolutely have been proven to rob us of happiness. You know, Facebook, they say, is everyone's highlight reel. So vacations and smiles and that sense of perfection that we see in others, that again, robs you of happiness. And I'm doing my best to limit my time on these platforms, and it's hard because we become so used to it and allowing it to fill the void but I think I'm onto something. And that same Stanford prof- professor that I spent a day with, he said this. It was interesting. Every one negative email that we get, or you could say the same thing for a text, causes about two hours of unhappiness. Now, this wasn't just theory. They actually tracked brainwaves or something. It was crazy. So they've been doing this for years. So let me just encourage you, and I'll do it over and over throughout the life of the show, to turn off the noise and focus on what matters. Your family, your friends, traveling, your spiritual health, exercising, so much easier to find happiness this way. And I tell you, I struggle with this because as an advisor, we can wear so many of our clients' stresses for them and we take them home with us. And we can take it personally. And I have to tell my parents all the time not to do this because I'm already doing this for you. I'm worried about the market so you don't have to. Enjoy your retirement, right? And that's why they make therapists. And that's why therapists have therapists and on and on and on. So we all need people and a team, support and love. And like Brene says, Brene Brown that is, We all need connection, and that connection is not the media. It sure as heck isn't money, and it's not the stock market. So with that being said, it's time to go to our top five compelling questions of the week. And every week I get these questions from you, the listeners, and clients that come into our office. And the goal is really to answer these in a way that can truly add value and help you to stay in that retire-while-you-work mindset. So hopefully these will help, help you with some of that. And if you have your questions throughout the week, you can always submit those by going to retirewhileyouwork.com and clicking the contact button at the top of the screen. Andrea, you have some questions for us. I do. I do have some questions for you, David. And these questions come in, like David said, in a myriad of ways through the week. Um, We get them through the website. David actually has people ask these (coughs) questions in the office. Um, But we want to make sure that we choose questions that we feel are the most compelling for the audience. And this one actually, I think, is spot on, especially with everything going on in the world today. Great. So the question was actually asked in our office about health care costs, and it's how much should we set aside extra in retirement to cover health care costs? 
uh, this lady's husband, and she were concerned over rising health care costs and how much do they anticipate year over year in retirement? Great question. Now, this is a tough one. And, you know, no one really has a grasp on health care costs. And, I mean, you go to the doctor and you get that, you know, that EOB statement and you just pray and cross your fingers that it's not that you're not going to owe a lot of money. It's really hard to figure out. It's wild. It is. And it's nobody seems to have any control. It's really frustrating. Yeah. And and as a financial advisor, that's our biggest nightmare to not have an answer and to factor in a set number. And so I'll tell you, you know, depending on the situation, what I've been doing is, you know, we may factor in approximately 10 to $12,000 extra a year and it's still an unknown. And this would be a number that we, and there's been studies behind this where the 10 to 12 comes from. Um, but this is money outside of Medicare and supplement policies that you have. Um, and again, this could all change in the White House, depending on who is in office every four years. And it's one of the biggest costs in retirement and also the one that's the hardest to predict. So um, I'll tell you, though, even as a financial advisor, and this is a little embarrassing to admit, but this is how convoluted the system is. I felt stupid just a year ago when I was on a ski trip and broke my thumb and went to the doctor, got it all taken care of, and then got these a bunch of bills when I got back and found out my Blue Cross Blue Shield policy had been canceled. And I was supposed to, got a letter in the mail that said I was supposed to change to a different blue or red policy or something like that. And it's happening again at the end of uh, 2000 or going into 2017. They're getting out of the business altogether. So a lot of people are, they don't get these letters and they go into January without health insurance. And you're a financial planner. So you, <laughs> right? I mean, these are the things that you're supposed to tucking, be looking, tucking looking my out. tail right now. But yeah, but that's, <laughs> I mean, we're all human and these things are, these things are hard to keep up with. So as an advisor, and I tell you, if you're doing retirement planning, set aside some extra money, the same way that we plan for home maintenance or buying a new car every so often or travel, just add that into the bucket and don't assume that it's all going to be covered. And this is going to change a lot. Great question. And I'll say this, if you're tuning in, you're listening to Retire While You Work, and I'm your host, David Adams, and we're taking some of your top compelling questions of the week. So let's All right. Another one. Next question. Uh, an, another good one, also talking about what needs to be set aside. How much, David, do you advise people to have set aside for funeral plots, funeral plans, okay. et, et cetera? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't get it often. Um, but I'd say, you know, with all holistic plans, I always talk about having different buckets of money. And, you know, one thing is you don't want to necessarily die bouncing your last check. But with the projections and the modeling that we use and that we recommend, hopefully we want to see a client that ends up with quite a bit of money, somewhere between half to all of what they started with in their portfolio at retirement. So there should be money left over to cover the end of life cost if the planning's done correctly. But you know, is it bad to earmark some money on the side? Not at all. I mean, you could have a, a separate savings account if you want, or you could have an, a separate bucket of money just for more of the mental accounting. And also for others that are going to be handling your estate so they know that there's money set aside for this cause. So, you know, other people will have a permanent life insurance policy that may address these expenses, or even you'll see people that go and prepay for their funeral costs. And there's not a right or a wrong here. Just having the awareness that there's going to be a cost here and most likely you need to have some funds set aside for it. Does that well, make sense? It makes total sense. And I bet we can get Jeff to jump in on this topic when he comes on, on in the fourth segment Oh, yes. Today. we got Mr. Mobley here, the estate planner extraordinaire. He could definitely talk about that, I'm sure, for an hour. But next well, question. Or go ahead. All right. Well, no, I, I guess the question that I have here that, that, um, that I wonder is, as a partner or yeah. as a husband or, or, or a wife, 
is there something, some kind of peace of mind that that offers to someone that's left behind? If you've got that plan put in place before, I would imagine that like everything else, if you're taking into account, you know, just what peace of mind means for happiness. Well, you can't put a, yeah, you can't put a price tag on peace of mind. So that's, again, going back, if you have a separate account with 25 grand or 50 grand set aside, and that allows others to know that there is a plan, that is absolutely very important. So for that reason, I think it's great. All right, we're going to go to another break. You've been tuning in to Retire While You Work. I'm your host, David Adams, on News Radio 1510 WLAC. And when we come back from break, we're going to continue with some more of your questions throughout the week, the top five most compelling. Thank you very much. See you in a few. Welcome back to Retire While You Work. I'm your host, David Adams, and I'm here in studio with Andrea Risk, who is taking some of your questions throughout the week and is going to read those to me now, the top five most compelling. All right. So I think this one is a, is a good one for anybody who has kids that's, that need this question answered or anyone who is going through this themselves. This question came from a listener, and it said, when you know they're about to get married, how do we go about joining our finances? Or should we leave them separate? Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of meat to this question. I'll start by saying, you know, a lot of people are waiting later and later to get married. And, you know, many, when they're at this stage, you'll see that they're independently successful and they have their individual 401k and investment accounts. And, you know, in these scenarios, a lot of times I'll hear clients say that they want to keep things separate. But I typically will piggyback off of that and at least advise that, you know, depending on the client's situation, at least consider some sort of joint account. Maybe it's a joint savings account. But, you know, to feel like you're building together and growing together and saving for mutual goals. I think this is very important for the health of the relationship. Um, you know, and other factors come into these type of decisions. So whether it's a second marriage or kids, you know, a lot of times, depending on the complexity of the family, you see prenups being used quite a bit as a financial planning tool. You know, and a lot of times that's to make sure that the kids are taken care of with certain accounts or insurance policies, or, you know, maybe they have someone that's uh, from a previous marriage that's paying alimony and they need or they want to keep things separate, you know, at this time. So it's a little bit different if it's a young couple that's just getting married with a small debt or no assets. It's usually a great thing to just go ahead and set it all up jointly and build that financial plan together and learn to be good stewards together. I think this is great. So saving and giving, you know, a budget and a spending plan, so it just really comes down to finding ways, you know, whatever that looks like, to have joint goals and ideally joint accounts where both of you are on the same page. And, you know, I'll be quiet for a minute. We ha Heck, we have Jeff Mobley, who's an estate planner, sitting right here. I mean, Jeff, is there anything that you would add to that? Well, Dave, thank you. What I see is with older couples, and they each have their own sets of children, and then it really becomes important that whatever they do, whether they create joint accounts or they leave accounts separately owned or they have POD beneficiaries or beneficiaries on life insurance or 401ks or IRAs, that it's part of their plan, that they understand the consequences at death of how they set it up. Right. The main uh, problem is that you want to make sure that the surviving spouse has immediate access to money to take care of final expenses, to not feel insecure about paying the bills of the household if one spouse dies. And on the other hand, you've got to understand, if it's jointly owned, 
the surviving spouse gets it all. Right. And it does not go to the children, even if the will says it goes to the children. Right. No, absolutely. It all comes back to having having a plan and understanding that plan. But I agree. I mean, the probably the most stressful situation for someone in that in that scenario is to not have money to pay the Comcast bill. Right. And to worry about, you know, worry about the, the weeds. And so having, you know, a three to six month cushion is very, very important. So thanks for that. Great question. All right. Well, this one, I think, will play right into our guest strengths as well. So, um, Jeff, feel free to jump in on this one. But, David, I know you you have some you have some pretty um, specific thoughts on this. So a family wants to know uh, she's she's a mom. She's widowed. Her husband has passed away and she has about three million dollars. Um, she said she'll you know, she's close to 75. She's probably going to go through about a million of it before she dies. She's planning to travel and she wants to pay off the mortgage. She's got some things she wants to do with the money. So she's got two kids. um, And so that's going to leave, she assumes, about $2 million. But her kids are still pretty young. They're in their uh, early 20s. And she just has some concerns with leaving children that young that kind of money, and apparently she's not in great health. So she okay. really wants to get this taken care of now. So do you have some advice for her? Yeah, I mean, $3 million, leaving a couple million dollars to, you know, a couple of kids that aren't um, fully mature and ready to deal with that responsibility, that's a that's a very um, important situation. Again, good timing today to have an estate planner in studio with me, so I'd love to hear his thoughts here in a minute. But, you know, from my experience, if you give them money when they're young, more than likely, they're not going to appreciate it, and there's high chances that, that they blow through it. We've seen this. This is no surprise. We see it over and over again. And, you know, typically at that age, there's just not that responsibility level. So why set things up for them for failure? Why not have, you know, through a trust or a different mechanism that Jeff can speak to, you know, something that says maybe it's at the age of 35 through a trust that they can have access to that money, or maybe they have you know, the ability to put 20% down on a house or maybe to pay for grad school. I think that's a way to maybe help protect your children from themselves. I mean, Jeff, would you add anything to that? That's exactly right, David. You want to make sure that the money is there when they really need it as adults with families of their own, with college costs, with all those kinds of expenses and worries. So you usually want to put it in trust for the child until they're 30 or 35. Okay. Okay. So those are kind of the magic ages, if you will. Right. And then I'm sure if you if you decide to adjust that down and, and they're responsible in 25, you wanted to change that, you can always change that. Point. Right. And the trustee can give them any amounts at any time. So can adjust to the maturity level and the financial acumen level of the child. Right. I mean, the last thing you want is a child taking a couple hundred thousand dollars a year out of an account that demotivates them from getting a job. So I think the best thing you can do is teach them about money and you know, let them meet your financial advisor, get a little bit of education. And there are tons of books out there that can help. This doesn't have to come, you know, certainly as advice for me. I mean, Clark Howard and I know Dave Ramsey, they have books that help kids on these topics. Get with your estate planner. Draft wills and trusts to accomplish this. Make sure that you choose the trustees appropriately that are going to honor your wishes and protect your kids from themselves with all of this money. Great question. Very important. Absolutely. Well, and we, you know, we've, I know, David, you've seen cases where kids get money too early and then they spend it really irresponsibly or they get used to a certain lifestyle. But over time, the amount of money they were drawing is not, it's not, it's not the same amount of money 
you know, at 35 as it was at 18. Well, especially so, if they ended up, you know, foregoing college or grad school thinking that they had enough income and then it runs out and now they're 28 and they expect to go find a job making $250,000 a year. Right. <laughs> and they're unpleasantly surprised. Unpleasantly surprised. McDonald's is not paying $250,000 <laughs> right, a year. Yeah, we'll see what happens to minimum wage, but I still don't think it's going up to two fifty. No, probably not. <laughs> All right, last question. Last compelling question of the week. Always a favorite um, and something I know you get a lot. Should you buy a car or should you lease a car? David Adams, give us your wisdom. <laughs> Well, you know, I was always taught that, you know, leasing was not very smart. And, you know, of course, that of course you buy. I mean, it wasn't really until probably five years ago that I started looking, you know, under the hood. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> not just at the numbers, but there's a lot of psychology behind this decision. So if you were just asking me, what's the best value, kind of dollar value per mile driven in a car, you know, it's going to be to... You know, to buy a used car with thirty to 40,000 miles, get that 40% initial depreciation out of the equation, and buy it that way and drive it you know, for 100,000 miles, that's going to be your most bang for the buck. But now, what if you love new cars and you're going to trade them in every few years anyway, just by kind of habit? Now, in my opinion, I would say don't buy in this situation. You know, it's not worth trying to sell a car that's, you know, you pay $100,000 for it, you put 30,000 miles on it. And now it's worth 60000 after a few years trying to sell it. And, and you, a lot of times you end up losing ten dollars or $15,000 or at least 10, 10% or so. It's not worth that hassle. So it's really on a case-by-case basis. You know, I've advised some families, you know, to buy one car that they're going to keep for maybe 10-plus years and get a lot of wear and tear out of it. And then if they have the income and it's, it's, it's enjoyable to them, lease a fun car. Trade that, one, trade that one in every few years if you get enjoyment out of that. just depends what you enjoy. And a lot of times, you know, I'll meet with business owners who can write off the lease in the business. And so that can really make a lot of, a lot of sense. And gosh, with all the cars coming out, the electric cars and all the technology that's out there, you may not want to own a car that every few years you're going to have to deal with old gadgets that break. So remember, a car is not an investment. It is an expense. And tying this back into happiness, if it's a luxury that you enjoy, then go for it. Enjoy it. Well, we're going to go back to break You've been tuning in to Retire While You Work on News Radio 1510 WLAC. I'm your host, David Adams. And when we come back from break, we have our special guest in studio, Jeff Mobley, who's going to talk to you about estate planning and things you need to have in order. You will not want to miss this. Be back in a few. Welcome back to Retire While You Work. I'm your host, David Adams. And before the break, we were answering some of your most compelling questions of the week. And remember, you can always submit your question anytime to retirewhileyouwork.com and click on Contact Us. And I'm here today with special guest Jeff Mobley to talk about estate planning. Hello, Jeff. Hi, David. Glad to have you here. And every week in this last segment, we like to bring you know a guest to the show that we think and hope can really help you get into that Retire While You Work mindset. And take a little something off your plate so that you can enjoy life and make the most of your time. And I certainly think that estate planning and having your affairs in order is in that bucket. So, again, welcome. And tell us, Jeff, tell us what you do and, and why you do it. Well, I'm an attorney. Uh, oh the term estate planner is used loosely. But when we talk about estate planning, you, you want to go to an attorney. I've been practicing law here in Nashville for 34 years. 
and working exclusively in this area of wills, trust, estates, and probate. A lot of experience. Well, you know, one thing, I believe I read it in a financial planning magazine, was that around 70% of people don't have a will. Does, does that sound right? And if so, I mean, why, why in the world is that? That's so right. I run into lawyers that don't even have wills. <laughs> It's human nature. They right. just put it off. They think they'll get around to it, you know. And it's just the confronting their mortality, their concerns and fears about their children, their family situation that just always prevents them from finding someone to help them through that process. They feel that maybe it's overwhelming or there's so much complexity that it's, it's just something that they don't want to do. Right. And we lawyers are our own worst enemies. I think people are sometimes afraid of talking to a lawyer about it. They don't understand the cost. They don't understand the process. They think they will lose control once they make that appointment with the lawyer. Oh, that makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I've sat in a lot of meetings with you over the years. And is it still the same basic documents that everyone needs? I mean, a will, a power of attorney, maybe a living will? What's kind of the basic? Everyone needs a will, the incapacity documents, that's the health care power of attorney, the financial power of attorney, the living will, and the third thing, everyone needs to make sure that their beneficiary designations, how their accounts are titled, whether in their name or jointly or with a payable on death or transfer on death designation, are consistent with their plan and what they want to do in their will. Right. So it's kind of that the, the horror story of somebody having, you know, a 401k with their ex-husband or ex-wife as a beneficiary, and it's supposed to go to the kids. Exactly. That's what happens. Someone thinks, I've got a will that covers everything, but their design, beneficiary designations, their account titling gives it to someone else. Right. And, and, and your beneficiary on whether it's IRAs or it's a life insurance policy, that trumps whatever it says in your will. It trumps the will. You, you use my verb. <laughs> Is there anyone that doesn't need these documents? I mean, is there, you know, if somebody is just getting married or they don't have assets, don't have any kids, is it everybody needs this stuff? Everybody needs it. We all know we're going to die. You know, when you're young, you're not likely to die, but incapacity, those kind of problems, disability can happen to anyone at any age. So you need the documents. So, okay, we hear a lot about, you know, the estate tax limit or exemption, as they call it. And, you know, I remember before in the last election, the fear was that it was going to go from, I think it was around $3 million down to a million, and then therefore it was going to affect a lot of people. It ended up going up to around $5 million. I know Republicans a lot of times will say they want to take it away, and, you know, it looks like it may go back to a million or $3 million. What do you think? I mean, how do you make light of this for planning? Well, there's so much fear and misinformation about the estate taxes. People come to me all the time and they say, Jeff, I need a will because I'm worried about taxes. Taxes are usually not a problem. There is no Tennessee inheritance tax anymore. That's been abolished. There is a federal estate tax. You have to have $5.45 million before you owe any tax. If you're married, each of you has that $5.45 million. So the couple, the married couple, has a total exemption of $10.9 million before any taxes are owed. So, I mean, you still want to have the basic documents, let's say, if you have a 2 or $3 million net worth, but you don't necessarily need estate tax planning, is what you're saying. Correct, but you need to be aware there's other kinds of what I call taxes. There's the remarriage tax. <laughs> right. you, you die and leave everything to your wife. 
and if she remarries and leaves it to her next husband, your children have got zero. That's a 100% tax in terms of how much of the inheritance they didn't get. So planning is really what's important. Right. And that, and that situation, you know, having a trust that doesn't go into the marital assets would prevent that problem. That's what we talk about with clients and make them understand, yes. So what do you think? I mean, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, over the next, you know, four to eight years, what do you see happening to that exemption? Is it, is it simply um, who's in office and what party's in office? Well, President Obama would like to reduce the exemption to $3.5 million. Um, the candidate, Hillary Clinton, has said she would like that size exemption, but that's got to get approved by Congress. I, we don't think those of us in the industry that are watching this don't think the exemptions are going to change in the next administration. Uh, so they likely stay the same. Right. But you've got to pay attention. You've got to have an attorney. You've got to have a financial advisor. You've got to have someone that's helping you pay attention to these issues. Sure. And it's something, I mean, a lot of your clients that, let's say, get a full package estate plan done, is it every three years, every 10 years, or just when big when there's big changes in the laws that they need to come back in? We encourage our folks to come in every two to three years to have a cup of coffee and talk about it and just see where they are. Okay. That makes sense. All right. So let's say when, you know, somebody comes in and I hear this a lot of times when I ask somebody, why haven't you, you know, finished drafting the documents with your estate attorney? And it's usually because they're stressed about who's going to be the trustee or who's going to be the executor or the guardian of their children. What is it that someone needs to know about choosing these responsibilities. Yeah, let's run through the 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 job descriptions. There's sure. an executor, there's trustees, there's powers of attorney. In all these roles, we tell our clients, pick with your head, not your heart. Okay. Make sure you pick the right person that will do a good job and that don't worry about if there will be a fee associated with it. That's not as important as making sure you have someone that will not tear the family apart or do the bad job. Well, yeah, because you're not going to be there anymore, so you can't worry about offending somebody. So you got to pick with your head and not your heart, right? Right, but people do it all the time. They say, oh, I should pick my oldest child, or I should pick this one or that one, or someone's feelings will get hurt if I don't have all three of my children as co-executors. Well, you can end up where they just never speak to each other again because it just all falls to, to dust and ruin because we don't have one person doing a good job being fair and communicating well with everyone else. You mean there are emotions involved with uh, state planning the same way there are with the stock market? That's <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the hardest part. I mean, I know it's the hardest part of our jobs. I'm sure I could speak for you on this, too. A lot of times we feel like Dr. Phil in our offices more than, you know, citing the textbook. We do a lot of counseling. I don't know if we do it well, but we try to help our clients <laughs> work through those issues. That's right. Well, you mentioned, um, so uh, the difference between an executor, a trustee, um, power of attorney for our listeners. Right. Well, I first want to say how they're all similar. They're all quarterbacks. They're all the person who's in charge of something for a period of time and has to be a faithful servant, not in charge in a power sense, in charge in a sense of being faithful, doing what's needed, working with the professional advisors, getting the job done. The executor is the person in charge of a will when you have a will. It, that, la that process lasts, let's just say, a year usually. Okay. And the executor goes away. 
Right. The trustee is in charge of a trust that may continue for until the children are 35 or some other age like that. But it's again, it's the quarterback, someone who is a servant and has that kind of mentality. And a power of attorney is someone who's going to pay your bills and take care of you and make health care decisions for you if you're incapacitated. Sometimes it requires a different skill set than an executor or a trustee, but it's real important to have the right person. Well, just listening to you mention those things, it's not a surprise that a lot of people don't end up finishing the documents because they, they sense that that's overwhelming. But again, it goes back to making those decisions with your head and not the, the emotions, but that's hard. And you can't make those decisions by yourself. You need a guide, someone who can talk you through it, can help you land that plane from the control tower. And that's what we try to do. We hear the clients, listen to their needs, their family situation, and we can help them make the best decision. Well, it's it's probably safe to say you've seen a lot of examples where not having a plan was, um, lack of a better term, a disaster. Is that fair to say? It's a disaster. That's how we pronounce it. <laughs> disaster. Because, like <laughs> you know, the, st- the classic example is the husband and wife. They're married. They have a couple of children. And they have most everything jointly owned, and so they think they don't need a will. Well, the husband dies, and it turns out that he did have some account in his separate name that wasn't jointly owned. He had a life insurance policy payable to his estate. When you die without a will, not everything goes to your spouse. Whatever is in your estate gets divided between your spouse and your children. We all love our children, but that can lead to some really difficult results. It can re- require the establishment of legal guardianships through the court system for minor children. It can be a total mess. Yep. The last thing you want is a court system deciding what happens to your assets and how the family's impacted. Right. And the courts do the best they can, but you do not want to have to spend lawyers' guns and money after your death to get things done. You want to plan it before you die. Well, thanks, Jeff. Any other quick tips for our listeners? Just to get with someone, don't, we're in a do-it-yourself culture. Don't try to do it yourself. Go. There are good lawyers that work in this area and will help you. Do not be afraid of going to see a good lawyer and getting the job done. Right. Thanks so much, Jeff. And how can, how can our listeners find you? Well, I'm in the <laughs> Nashville directory, the Internet, they can the look phone you up. book. Yeah, they can look me up. We're great. We appreciate it. Very important topic. Well, Thank you all for tuning in with us today, as always. If you need to reach me during the week, you can call us at 615-435-3644 or visit retirewhileyouwork.com and submit your question. Come by and see us at our office in the historic 12 South neighborhood. We'd certainly love to see you. I'm David Adams. And remember, life is short and there are many more important things to worry about than money. And I certainly hope that this show helps. 